You are listening to a sermon brought to you by Shatter State Chi Alpha. I pray that this sermon will bless you and teach you something new today. And you can find a link to our website in the info. Check it out and shoot us a message. We would love to hear from you. Alright, so, as you guys were here at the beginning of service, you noticed the kind of weird song that we started out with, uh, In the Belly of the Whale. Tonight's sermon is called Jonah's Anger. I feel like there's a, there's a book in the Bible, the book of Jonah. Most of us are pretty familiar with the loose representation of the story. The loose representation of the story is Jonah is called to go do something. He doesn't. He ends up getting eaten by a whale, and then God, the whale spits him out, and then he goes and does what God asked him to do. That's kind of the Sunday school short little like rough draft of the book of Jonah. But a few years ago, God kind of had me just reading the Old Testament. It was a period of two years. I went through the Old Testament a few times. And every time I tried to read something in the New Testament, I just kind of felt like God was prompting me, no, no, you need to stick in the Old Testament. You need to learn something out of this. And as I was reading in the Old Testament, you kind of go through these typical stories. You, you get through Isaiah there's a pretty familiar uh, feel to it. By the time you get to Jeremiah, it feels like almost the same book over again. You start to see a pattern within a lot of scripture of the Israelites and the, or the Jews, the ancient Jews. Basically, they would turn their face to God. They would do what God asked them to do for a little while. Then they begin to slowly turn their face away from God. They'd begin to rebel a little bit. And then in the rebellion, something would happen to them catastrophic. And then they would turn their face back to God and they'd repent. And they'd be like, God, help us. And then they'd follow God for a short little time. And then same thing over again. They would begin to slowly fall away. Then eventually something catastrophic would happen. And then they would turn their face back to God. And it was just this pattern over and over again. And then you get to the the story of Jonah. And as familiar as Isaiah was and as familiar as Jeremiah was, Jonah has the exact opposite feel to it. I mean, literally, it is almost like the polar opposite of the book of Jeremiah. I mean, it is the story of Jeremiah is a prophet going to a people group that don't want to hear what he has to say, and then the people group doesn't listen, don't listen to him, and then condemnation comes. Jonah is the exact opposite of that story. And so I read through Jonah, and actually, God actually had me keep rereading Jonah. Like, I read through it, and I was like, oh, cool. Jonah's only four chapters. It's real short. You can read it in seven minutes. So I want to encourage you guys, after we get done with this, or tonight or tomorrow, when you're doing some personal reading time, go through and read the book of Jonah. It will literally take you five minutes to read all the way through. It really doesn't take a whole lot of time. But in my personal reading, I just kept having to reread it. And God kept showing me every single time I'd read it, he'd show me something new within the book of Jonah, something really interesting here, something interesting there, something I had never seen before. And for a period, I want to say it was like two weeks. I just read Jonah every single solitary day, maybe two, three times a day, just kept reading the book of Jonah. And over over time, the book of Jonah has become one of my top three favorite books of the Bible. It is just, it is an awesome book. And so... Today, we're not going to go over the, the super basic version of the story that we're all so familiar with. We're going to dive deep into the book of Jonah, because like I said, it's only four chapters. It's really easy to cover. And so because it's so short, we actually have the luxury and the time restraints uh, 
to be able to actually go in depth into the story of Jonah. So tonight we're going to go into the book a little deeper than maybe you've gone before. So basically Jonah starts off and uh, Jonah is receiving a word from the Lord about the city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh was a very large city at that point in time. And Jonah's getting this word, and God's saying, hey, I need you to go and preach to Nineveh. Preach and tell them that, that condemnation is coming, and, and uh, my wrath is coming against them. They have turned wicked, and I just can't put up with it anymore. And so immediately, Jonah, instead of going to Nineveh, I figured out the distance and distance equations. And so uh, at that point in time, it was as far away from where God was sending him is where he decided to go. So equivalent distant wise, it'd be like if you guys in this room, God called you guys to the city of Denver. And instead of going to Denver, what you do is you hike your way to Valentine, Nebraska, and then you charter a bus or a boat, which there's no boat, so we'll say bus. You charter a bus and then you go to Chicago. Like distance wise, it was literally as opposite a direction as you can get. Well, not opposite, but it was in a way different direction. And so <clears throat> Jonah goes to Joppa, books a, a, a ship or a boat, a freighter boat basically, and is going to Tarshish, which is way different direction. And so <clears throat> you can see that Jonah isn't just rebelling. He's like straight up, I know you're sending me there, and I'm literally going to go in the opposite direction. I'm not even going to give this place benefit of the doubt. I'm not even going to go there. I'm just going to go in the opposite direction. You can begin to see that Jonah has some pretty strong feelings uh, for the city of Nineveh. You can tell that he doesn't really want to do what God has asked him to do. And so he gets on this ship. <clears throat> but before I go on, I want to ask you guys, have you ever been asked to do something by God that you absolutely rebelled against, that you just absolutely did not want to do it? Maybe you still haven't done it. I want to encourage you, if God has asked you to do something and you still haven't done it, go do it. Because life's going to be a lot easier, and we'll, we'll discover in the story of Jonah why life is going to be a lot easier if you just go and do what God has asked you to do. But <clears throat> for me, and I've told that story, this story in Chi Alpha before, but most of you guys are uh, new enough, you probably haven't heard it. For me, it was right off the bat when I became a Christian. I'll say the guy's name is Mike. God asked me to share the gospel and basically tell Mike how much God loved him. Well, this Mike person would have been the definition of my enemy at the time. I absolutely hated this guy, Mike. Like, I hated this guy, Mike. And his feelings for me were even worse than my feelings for him. Like, I despised this dude. I wanted nothing to do with him. And right off the bat, God says, hey, I want you to go and I want you to share with Mike about how much I love him. I want you to share with Mike how much and tell him how much God loves him. And so right off the bat, I was like, no, uh, there's no way. So I didn't do it. Well, every time I'd ask God and I'd enter into a prayer time with God, he just kept repeating it over and over again. Go and do this. Go and do this. Go and do this. 
And I was like, no, there's no way I'm going to go talk to this dude. And there's no way this conversation just isn't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. There's no way. And I put it off for a long, long time. But God just never let it go. He's like, I need you to do this. I need you to do this. I need you to do this. And so eventually I was like, all right, all right, I'll go and do it. And so I get into contact with Mike and I'm like, hey, hey, dude, you know, I just I felt like God was telling me to tell you how much he loves you. And his response to me was just paragraph after paragraph of expletives and how dare you tell me how much God loves me. How is that any of your uh, business? How dare you think you can hear from God better than me? Just anger. And I was like, all right, I did it. I'm done. And God was like, no, no, no. <laughs> you, you need to actually have a conversation with him. You need to talk to him. And so I tried to initiate conversation with him. And all I kept getting in response was just anger and hatred and, and just pff, nastiness. It was just rough. And eventually, God just kind of came to a point where he's like, hey, you've done what I've asked you to do. Um, you're released from this. And so I took it upon myself. I had seen Mike as my enemy. And so I decided I would begin praying for Mike. And I began praying for Mike regularly every time I think of him. And even writing this story still to this day, I pray for him. And I pray that he would encounter God in a powerful way. And I pray that, that his uh, anger and hatred towards God would would subside and that he could begin to see how much God actually loves him. And it's been eight years now. And for over the years, eight years worth of prayers going into this guy. Just recently, God said, hey, I want you to get in contact with Mike again. Eight, seven and a half years later, and I was like, all right, I'll get in contact with him again. And so I messaged him. I'm like, hey, dude, what's up? And he tried to pretend like he didn't even remember who I was. But this dude knew me, like we knew each other well. He knew exactly who I was. He tried to pretend like he didn't know who I was. Uh, and so I was like, hey, dude, I just want you to know how much God loves you. Just try to carry on a conversation with him. And he just was still angry, just absolutely angry. And at that moment, man, my heart truly broke for this dude. I teared up. I was crying. I was just like, I, I truly felt passion for this guy that I had once seven and a half years ago just absolutely hated. And uh, in that moment, God actually said something to me. He said, um, how much compassion you feel for Mike now is a fraction of the compassion that I felt for even the Pharisees. And I just kind of was like, oh, man. It's like the compassion you feel for Mike right now is a fraction of the compassion that I felt for even Hitler, for even ISIS, for even the enemies that you consider enemies to Christianity. You're feeling a, a, a tiny fraction of the compassion that I even feel for those people. And it just kind of broke me down and just kind of made me start realizing what it looks like to have compassion for everybody, you know, universally. But that's not really the, the point of this story. Um, the point of the story was to, to talk, talk to you guys about something that I rebelled against. It was a moment in my walk with God that I rebelled actively against someone he was wanting me to minister to. And so the only reason I even share that story is because through that story, I can see a lot of Jonah in myself. I can see a lot of Jonah's tendencies within my own tendencies. 
Now, I, I do believe that there is a significant difference because now that we have the Holy Spirit after Jesus Christ had died, I feel like the Holy Spirit kind of neutralizes our behavior a little bit. He kind of rings us in a little bit better than Jonah would have had back then. And so Jonah's reactions are going to be far more, more spiked in valleys and spikes and valleys than ours is going to be because of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit kind of keeps us at a neutral place. And so because of that, I see a lot of myself in Jonah. If you can't see a little bit, at least a little bit of yourself in Jonah, I think you need to be a little bit more self-aware because I really think all of us can see a lot of ourselves with Jonah. And so back to the story of Jonah. So Jonah is on a, on a freighter boat on this big, huge ship. And uh, they're going along, and then all of a sudden a storm, a nasty storm comes against the ship and begins to just rock it and tear it apart. And it is just... I mean, it is doing damage. It's doing so much damage to the ship that all the crewmates eventually just start throwing stuff overboard. They're just like, we need to get all of this weight off. They begin throwing everything overboard, trying to, to lower the weight of the ship so that maybe it'll calm down a little bit within the storm. And it's not doing any good. And so all the crew members are panicking, freaking out. And then we see Jonah. And Jonah is asleep in the basement of the boat, just just sleeping. Jonah knows exactly what's going on. And he's asleep in the basement of the boat, in the bottom of the boat. And so the crew comes up and they're like, dude, what are you doing? You're sleeping in the bottom of the boat? What on earth are you doing? Get up. Pray to your gods, whoever your gods are. We're all praying to our gods. Why aren't you doing the same? Why are you just sleeping in the bottom of the boat? Get up and pray to your gods. And that moment I think they're thinking, it's like, how on earth could you be asleep? When we're going through this chaos and this ship is getting ripped apart, I think it begins to show what Jonah wanted to happen. Jonah didn't care what happened to the ship. He really didn't because I think in that moment, he wanted to die more than he wanted to face God. And so the only reaction he could even face at that point in time is to go to sleep. Because while he's sleeping, he doesn't have to deal with God. And he doesn't have to deal with the reality of what God has asked him to do. And so the crewmates come in, they wake him up, get him up. What, what on earth are you doing? What on earth are you doing sleeping in the bottom of the boat? Begin praying to your God. So then the crew decides, hey, we're going to cast lots. We need to figure out who of our gods, because we're all serving different gods. We need to figure out who, which one of us is God is doing this. So they cast lots, and the lot obviously falls to Jonah. I think it's very clear that God's like, dude, I'm speaking to you, Jonah. We're going to cast lots, and it's going to be obvious. I'm going to make it as painfully obvious to this crew that you are the one who is in rebellion. I'm going to make it painfully obvious so that you are the one who's screwing up right now. And so they cast lots, and the lot falls on Jonah. And in that moment, they're like, dude, Jonah, what are you doing? What have you done? And he begins to tell them their story a little bit. And so they're like, man, you need to repent. You need to do something. You need to figure out. You need to pray to your God, call out to him, and ask him to help us in this situation. And Jonah's response is, is so great. And I say so great because I, it just doesn't make any sense. Jonah's response is, you should just throw me overboard and kill me. Not, hey, yeah, I'm going to take five minutes and I'm going to go ask God to quit. Or not even, hey, God, could you, could you calm down a little bit? Or, hey, God, I'll go do what you've asked me to do. No, his response is, you guys should just kill me. Just throw me overboard. That's all you need to do. Just kill me. 
So then the crewmates are like, oh, uh, if your God is really the God who's doing this, which we casted lots, we know it's your God. Your God is the one doing this. We're not going to kill somebody who serves him. And so the crew keeps freaking out. And then eventually the crew's like, okay, dude, Jonah's God. Please forgive us, but we're going to kill your servant and we're going to throw him overboard. We just, we can't do this. We're freaking out. We're going to kill him. And so then the crew decides, hey, we're going to toss him over. So they toss him overboard. And almost immediately, the this, this storm just calms down. So it becomes very clear to the shipmates, the, the, the shipmates on this, on this ship, that Jonah's God was the one doing it, and he was in rebellion. And now that they've killed him, God has calmed the seas. And so the shipmates immediately begin to have a fear for God and begin to repent and begin to offer sacrifices to God. And I think this is such a great teaching point because so often, even on our failures, God's glory still shines through. So even in Jonah's failure to do what God has asked him to do, an entire ship full of people began to serve his God. I think that's just so awesome because it just shows that so much chaos and calamity happens in this world, whether it's our fault or somebody else's fault. And it's not necessarily God's doing but through it, his glory still will shine through. And this is just such an awesome example of that. And so Jonah's thrown overboard, and he's sinking down, he's dying, he's, he's uh, getting to the point he hits bottom, and a fish comes along and swallows him. And while he's in the fish, he begins to realize what he is doing, the actions he is taking, and how bad God wants him to do what he has asked him to do. See, God didn't have the fish eat Jonah so that God's will could be done. God sent the fish to eat Jonah to save his life. I think that's a key thing within this story that I think we get wrong so often. And while I've been reading it and studying it, I've specifically looked at Jonah's response to God. Jonah's response to God isn't, man, you're going to make me do this anyway, and so I might as well just do it. His response is, I was at the bottom of the ocean. I had seaweed wrapped around my head. I was in pain. I was going to die. I was, I was at the base of the ocean where the mountains uh, are rooted, and you still saved me. And so his response is, hey, you've saved my life, God. I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. I mean, that speaks to even my own testimony. Like some of you guys have heard my testimony. I wouldn't be alive if it wasn't what for God did in my life. And because God saved me, I've decided I will do whatever you ask me to do, God. I will serve you 100%. And that's basically the response Jonah is having right here. So Jonah repents and he's like, God, I, I, please forgive me. You've saved me. You're such a gracious, amazing God. I will do what you've asked me to do. And so the, the fish immediately spits Jonah up onto the shore. Now, the cool thing here is the fish doesn't spit Jonah up onto the shore at Nineveh. That's not what happened. The fish spit Jonah up, and Jonah still had to walk to Nineveh. I think it's great because God is saying right here, I'm not going to force you to do something. I'm going to spit you up, and I'm going to give you another opportunity to do what I've asked you to do. And so Jonah found himself still having to make that trek to, to Nineveh. And at that moment, he could have rebelled again. He could have turned away. He could have gone to Joppa again got another boat, went to Tarshish. He could have walked his way to Tarshish. But instead, he's like, all right, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. 
And so in that moment, he decides he's going to go to Nineveh. And so he goes to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh, and he begins preaching God. Or not not God. He begins preaching to to the Ninevites. God is coming down on you. You've rebelled. You've screwed up. You've turned your face away from God. You've been in active rebellion. You are displeasing God. Turn. You are screwing up. God's wrath is coming. God's wrath is coming on your city. Now, God never once told Jonah within any of the scripture that if the Ninevites turned away, that he would stop his wrath. He just told Jonah, go and teach them and tell them that my wrath is coming because of their wicked ways. And so in this huge city, this city took three days for for, uh, Jonah to walk through. Three entire days for him to walk through. This is a huge city. This was a, a, a very large city, even in our modern day time. Now, back then, this city would have even been more significant. But even within our modern day time, this was still a very large city. It took him three days to walk through it. And so as he's walking through, people begin to, to hear his message. They begin to do exactly what he's saying. They begin to turn away from their, their rebellion and their, their sin, and they look towards God, and they humble themselves, and they put on sackcloth and ashes, and they begin to repent and ask God forgiveness. They figure, your wrath is coming one way or the other. The least we could do is humble ourselves and serve you and do what you've asked. And the cool thing is, it's not just the everyday people. It was literally the king on down, every single solitary person in that city. And not only every single person, but every single animal, every single cow, every single chicken, they clothed them with sackcloth and put ashes on them. So they were even, even the animals in that moment were uncomfortable. And then on top of that, the king says, hey guys, not only are we going to humble ourselves and we're going to put on sackcloth and ashes and sackcloth and ashes was kind of a outward representation of the inward humility. It was uncomfortable. It was dirty. It was disgusting. It was unclean. And so it was basically just an outward representation of how they were repenting to God inwardly. And they were trying to humble themselves. So they were covering the animals in sackcloth and ashes as well. Then the king kind of gets on. He's like, guys, so not only are we going to put on sackcloth and ashes on top of this, you're not to eat a, a bite of food or have a drop of water until God turns and changes his mind and saves our city. And not only will you guys fast, not eat and not drink, but all of the animals in Nineveh will not eat and not drink. So the entire city of Nineveh, baby to king, pig to sheep, probably weren't very many pigs there, cow to sheep, <laughs> pigs were unclean to the Jews in case you didn't get that every single solitary animal within this place was covered in sackcloth ashes and even the animals were forced to fast this city did exactly what Jonah didn't want them to do they repented they turned away from their sin and they focused back on God they did the exact opposite of what Jeremiah wanted the Jews to do back then Jeremiah was preaching repentance, and the Jews were like, we don't believe you because everybody else is saying we're good, so we're going to do what everybody else is saying we should do. And they didn't repent. And Jeremiah even 
goes fame to say even the rocks cry out. But in this story, the Ninevites turn. The Ninevites repent. The Ninevites do what God has asked them to do. And in this, Jonah becomes so angry. Jonah becomes furious because the Ninevites were saved and he didn't want them to be saved. It's kind of telling, and, and the way I kind of compare it is, a colleague of mine asked, hey, if God called you to preach repentance to ISIS, would you do it? Better yet, if Adolf Hitler was sitting right in front of you, right here, if Adolf Hitler was sitting right here, and he was 10 minutes away from death, in 10 minutes, Adolf Hitler was going to die, Okay? You guys can think about how evil Adolf Hitler was. I need you guys to focus. Think, imagine this. Adolf Hitler is sitting right in front of you guys. You know he's going to die in 10 minutes. God asks you, preach repentance to him for the next five minutes. And if you preach repentance to him for the next five minutes, Adolf Hitler will, will repent. Would you do it? Would you preach repentance to Adolf Hitler knowing he would repent and end up in heaven? Would you be able to do it? I can't honestly tell you whether I could or not. I, as a pastor, I want to say yes. I want to see everybody in heaven. But when I start to think about what Hitler was capable of and what Hitler did to so many people, it becomes hard to want him in the same place that we're striving for. This beautiful, perfect heaven where there's no pain and we serve God and everything is just amazing and glorious. We don't want Hitler there. That's the last thing that Hitler deserves. And so would you preach repentance to Adolf Hitler 10 minutes before he died, knowing for a fact he was going to go into heaven? I feel like that's kind of the scenario in which Jonah was faced. I feel like he had a deep hatred for Nineveh, a hatred that maybe we don't even necessarily understand in this present day. Maybe our grandfathers could understand that hatred maybe towards Germany. Maybe our grandfather, our great-great-grandfathers could understand a hatred that they used to have for even Japan. But in, in modern-day America, there's really no absolute enemy like that. There's no hardcore enemy, country, city, anything like that. And so we can't really necessarily understand the kind of hatred that Jonah probably had for Nineveh. And then this city, imagine Hitler, this city repents and God saves them. And Jonah is reacting to God. He's saying, God, you should have just killed me. I knew this was going to happen. This is why I didn't want to come is because I knew you were a gracious God. I knew you were going to save these people. I don't want you to save them. I would rather you just kill me. Strike me dead right here, God. Kill me right here, God. I just want to die. I'm so angry. I'm so full of rage at what you've done, God. Just kill me so I don't even have to put up with this anymore. So this next part, I think, is better if we just read it rather than me speak it. And so if, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jonah 4. We'll be in verse 5 through 11. 
Jonah 4, 5 through 11. It will be on the board if you don't have a Bible. All right. Jonah 4, starting in verse 5. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow over Jonah to give shade for his head and to ease his discomfort. Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm in which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint, and he wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. There's that word, there's that phrase again that Jonah's repeating. It would be better for me to die than to live. I'm so angry. It would be better if you killed me. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. A little melodramatic, right? Verse 10, but the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it. You did not make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. You literally had nothing to do with it. Verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Man, that's a lot of pride, isn't it? So much pride. And it says, more than 120,000 of people who do not know their right hand from their left. A lot of scholars believe that means babies or kids. So 120,000 kids. Some other scholars believe that that's people who are just babies in their faith, not necessarily infants. And saying basically has 125,000 or 120,000 people who are so infant in their belief of God. They're new believers. I believe it's the former, not the latter. I believe this city was a lot bigger than 120,000 people. But either way, that's so much pride. It's so much pride that a leaf grows and provides shade. And then a worm comes and kills it. And his response is, it would be better for me to be dead than to have the sun shining on my face. How prideful is that? How arrogant is that? That Jonah can't even humble himself for five seconds. And he's so instantly angry. It's just, I, I can't even fathom that level of pride. But then I stop and I remember what I said earlier. I see so much of myself in Jonah that I wonder if I took the Holy Spirit's influence away from myself and I lived back then and God had asked me to do something like that, would that have been me? Would that have been you? In that moment, would you be so full of pride that even a plant that provided shades death for you causes you to go out in full rebellion of God and just wish that you were dead? Like I said, I see myself in that. I see myself a lot in that, just at a more subtle level, and I really feel like that's the Holy Spirit kind of keeping us in check. And here's the thing about this whole story. As we kind of wrap up tonight's sermon, we begin to wrap up what 
what the point of this is, is Jonah reminds me so much of the Pharisees. Jonah and the Pharisees were good at being good. They were good at knowing the law. They were good at memorizing the law. They were good at doing what the law asked. But just like the Pharisees, Jonah completely lost sight of what God was wanting to accomplish. And he had his own vision of what he wanted to do and what he wanted to accomplish. The Pharisees were the same way. They had a viewpoint of what they thought should happen and what the Messiah should look like to them. And they completely missed the picture of what God was wanting to do. And so for us, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for us modern day Christians? We have the Holy Spirit. We have salvation in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It means we need to be very careful that we're not good for the sake of being good. That we're not going to church for the sake of calling ourselves a Christian. That we're not coming to Chi Alpha for the sake of my good duty that I need to do for the week. Of reading the Bible because we're supposed to do it. Of spending time in prayer because that's what good Christians do. We need to keep focus on what God's goals are what God's agenda is, and constantly remind ourselves that our goals and our agendas pale in comparison to what God's wanting to do. We need to make sure that we're not falling into that trap of just being good for the sake of good and missing alignment with what God wants to do. And how does that work? I could say the very start of that is we need to find a way to love deeper than we love right now. Every single one of us in this room, myself included, my wife included, we need to find a way to love the unlovables. We need to find a way to love even the Hitlers and even ISIS and even the the unmentionables. We need to find a way to, to love the people that we can't even fathom agreeing with for five seconds. In today's America, it's Democrats and Republicans. It's people who knee at football games and people who are boycotting the NFL. All of that absolutely doesn't matter, and we need to learn how to love the people on the other side of this issue, on the other side of the issues that we hold so near and dear to our hearts. And I'm not saying what side I'm on. I'm not saying what side you should be on. What I'm saying is you need to find a way to love the people that you disagree with. You need to find a way to love the people that are your enemies. Find a passion for people that you can't stand. Find a way to love them the way that I have a passion and a compassion. I pray for that person I told you about named Mike, who at one point I declared him my enemy, and now I have a a compassion for him in which I even tear up when I realize how in rebellion he is to God. We need to find a way to love those people like that. And then secondary, we need to stop telling God what our life needs, and we need to start asking him what he would like for us to do and then do it. And there's no real big, huge way to end today's sermon. That's the end of the sermon. It's a short, well, I don't know if it's short. It felt short to me because I love preaching this short sermon. But I'm not going to wrap it out in this long, long, drown-out way. Tonight's sermon really does end that simple. We need to start loving the people that are hard to love, and we need to stop telling God what our life needs and start asking what he would like to do, what he would like for us to do. So all it comes down to, it's that simple. That's how we stop that 
pattern of being good for the sake of being good. How we stop that pattern of reading our Bible just because we're supposed to and praying just because we're supposed to and doing this because we're supposed to. That's how we break that pattern. And it's that simple. I wish I could give you some sort of formula and ten-step program in which you can set out to do it and accomplish it, and then all of a sudden you'll be this amazing Christian that brings revival everywhere you walk. But it's not, I can't do that. Because it really does come down to start loving people, especially the people that are hard to love, and to stop telling God what our life needs and to ask him what we should do. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today and the opportunity to focus on you. That even though there were so many distractions tonight and so many opportunities to lose focus of what you were wanting for us tonight, Lord, I pray that every single student here could catch on to something from this sermon that will resonate with them as they leave here. Something from tonight that will change them, will begin them on a new path, serving you in a bigger and better way than they could have even fathomed before tonight. Lord, I pray that you would give these students success to this week with their midterms. Lord, as they have sacrificed valuable time to come here tonight to focus on you and to learn more about you, that Lord, you would reward them with more time to study and more time to get their homework done this week. Lord, we love every single student here, and uh, we pray for good grades this week. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.